0: This is Customer Experience Leaders, a podcast produced by Rated. It's a show where we reveal the secrets of how great brands delight their customers.
1: We have this big thing of brand and consumer, and that's a really dangerous way to think about it. We talk customers because other people are coming in and transacting with you, and that's a transactional relationship. And we want to get beyond that, to uh, have the brands trust the people and the people trust the brands, And to do that, we've got to treat each other like people.
0: That's the voice of Michael Bernard. He's the general manager at Customology. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. Hi there, I'm Michael Momsen. So, Michael, we have another Michael on the show today. Yes, <laughs> we do. So, I become Mike in the show. Yes, and Michael is the head of Customology, a agency which employs design thinking, behavioral economics and data to help brands build customers for life.
2: This show was fantastic. We really explore what is a great loyalty program and how to go beyond just discounts and campaigns and really think about building a true meaningful relationship. And then also how, what to do with this mountain of data that we're sitting on in organizations and how to synthesize this data
0: and how to use that to create the right programs to really build meaningful relationships. So, we started out by asking Michael, do loyalty programs actually work?
1: Like all marketing, it depends on how they strategize and how they execute executed. It's like saying, does TV advertising work uh, or does the social media advertising work? It can and it can't. So it really depends on, do we actually have a purpose and a strategy around what we're doing? Do we have something that's valuable to the people? Are we executing it well? And does it execute well in-store or online or where our customers actually go and transact? And I think lots of programs out there are really ineffective. They are not thinking for the customer. They're not supported by the business, so they fail. And I don't think you can take it in really broad strokes if they work or not, but there is things that customers value and we can definitely build a program around that.
0: Can we actually maybe take one of those examples of you know one that's ineffective and maybe pick apart why it's actually not working? Is there an example you can think of?
1: I, mean, I can talk about the, you know, the buy nine and get the 10th free. I mean, That kind of works in the sense that okay, people might come back and get their 10th free, but I'll be able to really influence the customer. I mean, to have a program, we're looking to increase frequency around the customer's activity. Or if not that, at least have an opportunity to increase the ATV in-store as well. So, the buy nine, get one free, while it's giving someone a reward for doing something, they're probably not the best way to manage a program in market. So, certainly don't scale well across multiple stores and we can have a digital part of that, but not everyone wants to have a digital loyalty program.
2: Yeah, One of the things that I find interesting is that there'll be certain places where I will go regardless and so, therefore, that loyalty kicker actually, it's just something that they've taken off their bottom line, frankly, because I would have gone there anyways. But then it's also nice to have a bit of a feel-good factor that, you know, thank you for being a good customer. But I don't know, it probably doesn't need to be in a program Then sort of delight me in another
1: way. Yeah. I mean, you could be surprised and delights. And how fantastic would that have been? If instead of you've gone to your same coffee shop all the time, here's your chance one free. And if they're not coming in, why not just give you something when you're there? And they don't have the discount. Why don't they give you something from the cabinet? Why don't they give you two coffees? Why don't if you see you bring a friend in, go and serve up a plate of food for it? That's going to add to your whole experience and the whole value perception you have as a customer.
2: And it can be done at scale, right? Like it doesn't just have to be the small coffee shop. Like National Australia Bank could actually just contact me out of the blue, saying, "I just want to thank you for being a customer for the last fifteen years. You know, this year's credit card fees are on us. Thanks very much." Um, and it doesn't have to be a, you know a loyalty program or anything. It's just a way of saying thank you. We value your loyalty. <laughs>
1: I mean, that's, that's a big challenge a lot of programmers is a lot of them are geared to actually not reward the people who are most loyal. They're used as a hook to get people in and then you may actually get less benefits the longer you are loyal to the brand.
2: I'm interested in exploring this a little because I think the motivation, certainly that I've come across in setting up a loyalty program actually isn't to build a deeper connection and truly go, thank you so much, Michael, for being a loyal customer. You know, we really value that and so we want to invest in this relationship. My sense is that the motivating factor for having a loyalty program is one, to ensure that there's higher increased repeat business and maybe higher transaction sizes and two, now it's probably the data play. You know, we need more data on our customers and understand, you know, what's happening and then being able to market to them and, you know, bring offers back in. Could you maybe talk about those two motivations and do they actually work?
1: I mean, they certainly work for the retail side. I mean, they, if they have your data, they can, if they're smart about it, they can use that for targeting, messaging and influence behavior. That's a really important part of the mix and why they get that data. Increasing frequency, that's something you can do. You can promote that and you can incentivize that behavior. Increasing ATV is actually something difficult to do from a program sense. In a communicating way, you can definitely do the install and execute. So it's really about building traffic to go into store and that inquiry and letting the the operational component really maximize the opportunities out of that inquiry as as much as possible.
0: Can I just ask Michael when you said ATB, what do you mean by that?
1: Oh average transaction value, the basket size basically, how much they're spending in store when they go in there. How can you tell whether
2: a loyalty program is actually driving greater value and repeat business versus what I would have done already? So, I mean, I can think of many examples where I've gone out of my way to book a Qantas flight because I wanted to get those you know, extra status points or what have you. And so, therefore, there's a loyalty program that actually has driven purchase behavior away from their competitor. How do you know when you're actually driving behavior?
1: The simplest way is to find a scientific testing method to make sure that we are making a difference. So where possible, applying some control and treatment, groups back to high school science. Let's put something on the side and don't test with it. And let's go and do some changes to the other cohorts, the other parts of the market, and see if it make a difference. Now, that's possible when you're doing campaigns. Sometimes it's hard in a loyalty program where you've made a promise to the customer. You can't hold them back from not getting the promise. So in those ones there, it's, it's really looking at are we changing behaviors over time, are the behaviors we influence as part of the program the ones we want to promote? And basically, it comes down to we can't manage what we can't measure. So, if we don't have the metrics we're looking for to go and, and actually control some of this stuff, it's going to be very difficult to monitor are we making a difference? Part of it, probably the bigger picture though, is loyalty shouldn't always be about discounting. And that's probably the bit's misnomer in the industry or in, in marketing, as I sense, that they think loyalty has to be a discounting card or a promotion card. And it doesn't have to be that way. There's plenty of things in the value scale for customers. We just got to find the ones that make sense to the different types of customers for every brand.
2: Like, Michael, do you even need to have a loyalty program? Like, if I think about some of the great organizations that are executing really well, you know, Apple, the Teslas, I mean, even Kmart Australia here locally, they all have raving fans and people that are super hyper loyal and they have no loyalty program at all.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And maybe the truth is, you don't need a loyalty program in the sense of having a physical card and identifiable program. But don't mistake those brands don't have customer initiatives that actually drive loyalty. They're still marketing directly to customers. They're still putting a program of communications in place to influence and change customer behavior. Trust me, they spend significant amounts of money on making sure there's a program and a controlled way they're managing customers. In fact, they work sometimes better when there isn't a physical program. But it depends on your business and the type of model and what your competitive landscape is to what you need.
0: So it's almost like some of these brands that we think of as like great at delighting customers, they have a loyalty program, but it's just never public. It's just an internal tool that they're running to, you know, really delight customers, but nobody ever sees it.
1: Totally. It's like the duck on the pond sort of stuff. They're working very hard under the surface to make it seem like it's seamless on top, but there's a lot of activity underneath to make sure that the communications you get are relevant, that they're getting your data, that they're making sure your experience is delightful to making sure they're rewarding the right behaviours and ultimately to make sure they're mitigating you from leaving the business that stopping the churn factor as soon as possible.
0: It seems like we're creating loyalty programs for ourselves, you know, for the business, for profitability, for repeat purchase, for those kinds of things. Are we kind of fooling ourselves by thinking that we're doing something good for the customer here?
1: (laughs) You're on point. A business has a program to ultimately drive sales. But To do that, we need to actually be a little bit more customer-centric. We need to think about what is the value of giving back to the customer. So you're right in the fact that lots of brands are being very business-centric or tech-centric where they can or they want to influence something that only makes sense to them as a business. Discount on Tuesday at 2pm for a loyalty member sounds like it's probably not What's best for the customer. It's what's best for the brand.
2: Right, because they need to hit a sales target by Wednesday.
1: Yeah, they're hitting a sales target. Yeah, or if it's only on certain promotional goods, that's not really rewarding the customer for the behaviors they're doing.
2: That's Because they need to clear out old stock anyways, so you're just trying to have me as your dumping ground.
1: (laughs) Exactly right. And that's what they treat these customers at. They're not really trying to reward that behavior. Or or technology-led, they've either built an app and they're invested in that or they've got some technology they can do in store, so they rely on that. But they're not really thinking how that actually increases the behavior of the customer or influences the behavior of the customer.
2: What, in your opinion, are some examples of great programs? Like what is the gold standard of loyalty programs
1: and why? Gold standard is is probably, uh, I don't think anyone's there as for a, a gold standard.
2: Wow, that's interesting.
1: Because I think we're still learning what really, really drives decision making. And while there's been lots of studies on that, people change and lots of things change that make people do different decisions. So, I mean, ultimately, we're looking at this, uh, there's a hierarchy of people's values, perceptions, and if you're purely in the functional components of loyalty about price or discounting, uh, or convenience, those things are great. But from a competitive point of view, that's easy for people to, to challenge you or take your customers at that point. The idea is to get higher up that cycle, up to the emotional, up to the life-changing part and beyond that, to really have a way of a stickiness with the customer. So there's some really good programs out there. I mean, we've seen some fantastic things out of the States. I mean, Walgreens do a very fantastic program they run, which is when you get your flu shot, they'll actually give a flu shot in another country as well. So there's this uh, act of social good. So it's, it's transcending what I want as a customer but it's giving me a bit of social goodwill that I feel like am contributing to. So that's a really good way to run a program, but it's a below-the-service program. No one knows. They're not signing up to doing it. It's just an act to influence customers, but they're communicating at a customer level.
2: Since we've been you know, chatting about a loyalty program shouldn't just be a discount policy, You know, what you're saying is an ideal one is well thought through, empathetic end-to-end, etc. Do you have any examples of where you've maybe worked with the business and taken them along this ride and they've had an aha moment and you've seen some good results from that?
1: It's very hard to get a brand to get thinking about that. We work with a lot of retail brands. Retail's tough, and I think the climate in Australia right now is very brand centric, business centric. There's lots of things we can do in that space. ultimately it's, it's probably not at that transcendent level. We're not going past social good. I think most brands we work now are getting into more of the emotional levers, so injecting some fun in their programs, having some more exclusivity things that go and help with their status, their aspirational goals. That sort of is coming more and more into it. And look, a brand who does that well is something like creep and Fly, you get to the you get to the silver, gold, and then the platinum because you're aspirational about your status inside those programs at an emotional level.
2: Maybe let's explore that a little bit. If I was to like visually draw up what you're saying, it sort of feels like there's a triangle here of kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you will, for loyalty. And at the bottom it's kind of Give me some discounts and some cheap shit. (laughs) And then the next one is sort of an emotional connection. And you're really thinking about, you know, making me feel better about myself, whether it be fun or status. Um, And then I suppose the the top one is this actualization where I feel like I have a a deeper relationship with you and I really feel like you care and I feel like we're going on a really meaningful relationship together. So, if no one's at the top, can we maybe explore some that are in the middle, which are sort of thinking about the emotional aspects and like you said, things like my status and, and how I'm feeling? I'd love to hear some stories around that.
1: I mean, you're right. It's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And there's a company, uh, Bain & Company, who do uh, a lot of research in this space as well. And they've actually got a customer value model, which is very similar to that. And so it's really working on what's functional. As you said before, it's what are they saving? How are they going to earn more money? So that's what points fall. Uh, it's the discounting stuff. It's convenience, things like that, everyday functional things. And programs need to have that as some level of baseline. If you're not getting past the functional, it's hard to get to the next one, which is promotional. And emotional things like extra benefits or rewards make people feel good, exclusivity, status and aspirational goals, things that reduce anxiety, take pressure off, and things that inject a bit of fun. And then I see there's actually two more above that, which is this life-changing. So this is more self-actualization, things that are aspirational to, to me and things that motivate and give me hope and wellness and those sort of things. And then the last one is really that the social impact. So, you know, it's being socially responsible, having programs above just myself as a person. So, I think with our customers, we're really looking to get the functional stuff in there to some degree, because that's where a lot of people fall in, because that's the things that they look for the most. I mean, status is a really easy one to, to use inside a program. People want to be seen as, as successful, they want to be seen that they're achieving things. So, putting status into programs is good, but also reducing stress and anxiety is another one we can do that for. Um, we work with a number of you know heavy investment sort of purchases. It could be jewelry. So a brand like Michael Hill, you're buying something and you're buying it for life and you want to know that you've made a good purchase choice there as well. So having a way to reduce the customer anxiety with a program where you can come and get it checked and cleaned and, and looked after like a showroom shine all the time that, that life-changing events and you want to upgrade your piece or break your piece, it's all part of what you purchase as well. So it's not just getting a sale, getting a discount, it's finding other ways to sort of add additional benefits.
0: It seems to me, Michael, that we came into this conversation asking, do loyalty programs actually work? And maybe that was the wrong question to ask. What I'm hearing is it's less about like a loyalty program, in quotes, those two words, and more about just developing a great relationship with your customers.
1: Totally. I mean, customers are people. I mean, we have this big thing of brand and consumer, and that's a really dangerous way to think about it. I actually really don't like the term consumer in that sense. And it dehumanizes the people behind who are there. We, we talk customers because other people are coming in and transacting with you. And that, that's a transactional relationship. And we want to get beyond that to uh, have the brands trust the people and the people trust the brands. And to do that, we've got to treat each other like people. And often where we start with brands is doing things that sound really simple, like a genuine thank you, just a, a straight up hard saying, thank you very much for shop- shopping with us and choosing us. Don't load it with discounts. Don't load it with promotions. Don't load it with surveys. Just tell me how well I did my NPA stuff. I mean, <laughs> you don't hang up after you know a phone call with a friend and say, okay, so tell me how I went. That's <laughs> kind of rude, right? Hey, thanks for talking. It's been fantastic. We'll see you next time. All right.
2: The way that I'm sort of uh, synthesizing this conversation, Michael, is it's almost like the loyalty program is a structure that allows you to consistently deliver something around a great customer experience and make them feel great. I want to ask a um, bit of a controversial question, which is in Australia, we have some huge programs like flybys is probably one of the biggest loyalty programs in Australia, uh, it almost frustrates me every time I go into Coles and they ask me, am I a flyby's member? And <laughs> I feel like I've heard that question, I don't know, probably 5,000 times in my life. But arguably, that would have Australia's biggest sort of customer purchase database. And I know there's a lot of services and agencies that hook into that. If you could sort of re-engineer a massive program like that, what would you recommend?
1: That's an interesting one. Um, I'd first reduce the complexity. It's a very complicated program and it's actually geared very, very well for Coles and the program, and it's not actually that rewarding for the customer There's no real benefit. In fact, you do the calculation and points and you're going to spend about say two fifty a week on groceries, that's thirteen thousand dollars or so a year, that gives you thirteen thousand points, and the exchange rate back to the points to dollars is about half a cent so after a full year's worth of shopping, you've got about sixty five dollars you can actually get up uh, to spend in stores. Nice. That's not a very generous proposition, but it's very hard and fuzzy. It's really a gamification program is what that is, the gamified shopping. It's bonus buys, bonus points. They're pushing you to higher margin goods. They're they're pushing you to go to their partners to get uh, credits back. So if I had to go and change it, I'd probably embrace that more uh, in the sense that the program right now, it's actually the best way to use flybys and the rewards is actually to keep swapping between the two of them all the time. If you stop shopping at Coles for a little bit of time, then you'll actually get really, really great offers back into to come into store because they're all targeted to you. So it's actually not rewarding loyalty. It's actually rewarding a, a churn behavior. So the more often you churn between the two, the more changes behaviors between the two, the actually better off you'll be.
2: Or just change between the partners and the household, which uh for <laughs> card you use. they <laughs> think one's churning.
1: So I think in a program like that, it'd be hard to go and really change the value proposition, but I'd be looking at decomplicating it, making it very easy for customers. I know the margins aren't significant inside groceries, so I'm not going to have to give a $1 dollar per $100 spend. That's it's harder to go and do, but to reward the behavior of customers actually being loyal. So to gamify the the streaks, basically, the more you come in, in a row up your regular buying cycle, the more bonus points, the more rewards they get for that really, really drive the frequency of loyal customers and reward that behavior. Don't just have a program there to to ultimately push promo offers out to them.
0: Welcome to the Quickfire Round, our game show segment where we ask you questions and you've got 10 seconds to answer. Michael Barnard, are you ready? Sure, let's go. All right. What brand do you look to as an example of great customer experience?
1: I mean, Apple Mail. the overall customer experience. That's probably got to be one of the the top ones up there. Great.
2: What job did you learn the most in?
1: Uh, Working behind a counter. I used to work at a a cinema and, uh, you know, dealing with cash, dealing with people, dealing with problems, first world problems sort of uh, really is an eye opener.
0: What skill are you terrible at?
1: I can't sing. Uh, I've got a three-year-old daughter and I sing way too many wiggle songs and they all come out pretty horrible. So, what's
2: the best advice you've ever received?
1: Uh, probably it's truth to power, right? Don't hold back um, criticism, thought, idea, feedback to someone who may be in a more senior position than you because they, they need to be told what's working what's not. They need to have your ideas and feedback and if we hold that back and everyone around them is just yes men, well, we're not progressing as people or businesses.
0: What are your top book recommendations at the moment?
1: Oh, it's got to be Start with Why. That, that's if you don't have a purpose behind the business, then all you are is selling what you do, not what you believe. Eat the Frogs. Another one. I mean, start with the stuff you need to get done. Get it out of the way. Get it done. Don't procrastinate. I like my team having broad critical thinking things. So I think the um, the personal MBA is a really good book to round out people who may not have done a business degree. They may have a speciality, but really helps them broaden out their understanding of how value models are created, how, how marketing's done, how sales are done, how businesses are run.
2: Michael, what are some non-work related things that you're really into right
1: now? I've got a toddler, so a lot of it is watching lots of Wiggles and playing with Play-Doh and doing puzzles. And <laughs> but is that what you're into? Are you into the Wiggles?
0: Uh, I have to be <laughs> by
1: default. I don't get a huge amount of time for hobbies, but I love picking up my guitar when I have some time to go and do that. I'm still a bit of a geek at heart so I do jump in there and I sort of try and build some things and play with some data and make sure I'm up on the tech as well it's an important part we've got a heavily technical team here just being a little bit outside as well taking the dog for a walk taking the family down by the, the bay side here in Brisbane so it's um, yeah
0: Where do you go to upskill? You know is it books YouTube podcasts or something else?
1: Well I think you've you can't go to one place. Um, books are really good from big, long, arching ways of doing things, but by the time they're written, a lot of the content may be dated as well. So, being kept being up on podcasts is another great way. I drive a lot, so podcasts are fantastic. Um, you know, being, uh, being a customer as well, being observant of what's happening in market at the same time. I mean, you want to know what's happening, you know, do a shop on Amazon, do a shop at Coles, do a shop at Woolies. That's going to really show you what's happening out there in the world.
2: Michael, what's your favorite quote?
1: Probably, probably the one that I, I, that I come back to would be the Steve Jobs one and a lot of people say this one. But it really is to start with the customer, not the technology. Uh, work out what the customer needs first and then build the technology around it. And that was, you know, he got called out in an interview close to 20 years ago now or 15 years ago and someone said, you know, they're that, that, that building crap things um, and he basically said, no, no, we start with the customer while we're doing it for them.
0: And uh, final question, what's your guilty pleasure? <laughs>
1: Coffee, coffee, coffee. <laughs> that's my advice. Uh, I'll take as much as I as I can.
2: So. How many coffees will you have a day? What's your upper limit?
1: Too Do many, you- probably we might be edging up to the, the nine ish if we okay. Have a <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, pretty that's, high. That's pretty high. I mean I try and keep the piccolos down. I'm trying to keep it as healthy as possible and it uh you know, it happens you go to a lot of meetings, it's sort of part of the etiquette of meetings to have coffee as well and uh, Busy family life
0: you need it. So. Blame yeah. the client, I say. Oh, it's just it's because of the client. It's a culture. It's a culture. It's the advertising
1: culture, marketing culture. Yeah, so maybe let's have a chat about
2: using the data sets that we already have in an organization to understand what customers are doing and then thinking about, you know, loyalty and delighting customers. In most situations, we're all swimming in data. You know, I'd love to hear your experience and sort of practical tips around Taking the data that most businesses have already and sort of looking at that, synthesizing it, and then finding out, you know, what can we now practically do to create greater engagement with our customers.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's such a race and there's such a drive to get more and more and more data. As brands are KPI'd around it. They're putting more programs to capture more data, but a lot of them aren't using the most valuable data they have, which is the points of interaction between the customer marketing and the customer's transaction. So it doesn't have to get more complicated than having some way to identify the customer where they actually go and make a sign. You need a way to be able to tie the customer to the transaction at some point. So in a brand like Flight Center, it's fantastic. You're going you're giving your details across. But then in a brand like Michael Hill, you don't always give your details over the counter. So finding a way to engage and get those contact details is important. So what are we looking at? Well, we need to have who are they, a name, what are the contactability details? So we have marketing preferences. Are we able to actually communicate? And then what are they buying? What, what's their transactions? How can they coming through? What are they spending? What preferences are you know, What sort of categorizations? That's as much as we really need to get started. And what I guess I'm warming up to is looking at that RFM model. And that's as simple as we can get. So the RFM model is looking at recency, frequency, and money. how often they're coming in, how recently do they come in, and how much do they spend when they're in there. And When we use that sort of modeling, and it doesn't have to be complicated, but we basically want to rank and score customers into cohorts. While we want to keep reducing those cohorts down to really small grain sizes for a brand to start, Your loyal customers you want to treat differently than your new customers. The customers that used to be loyal that you haven't seen for a while, we need to mitigate them leaving the business. So looking at customers in in cohorts is a really practical way to do targeted campaigns. Um, I'm obviously on a lot of email marketing lists. There's a couple on that I get emails pretty much every other day. And their buying cycle is probably once or twice a year. So it's very disconnected from how they're sending communications. But they treat every single customer the same. Every single email going out there is a discount. The discount is a discount. They're not looking at what I purchased last week. And looking at what I've purchased in the past and looking at how often they come through. So I think the takeaway from the data is, is to use that data to build relevancy in the communications. Use that data to don't personalize with someone's, you know, dear Michael, that's not really personalization. It's about what content we're showing in the messaging that builds a relevancy to where they are in their buying cycle.
0: If we're seeing a lot of brands making these mistakes and treating customers really impersonally, who is doing this well?
1: Amazon has to be you know, the, the top of the mountain as far as what they're doing. They pioneered. Other customers also bought this stuff. They pioneered having really personalized recommendations. They really made the sales process as low friction as possible. So they do a fantastic job. And you know, I don't know how many Kindle books I buy, but half of them I don't actually get to read them all. But I'm certainly they're relevant, so I want to keep buying them all. They've got the toe in the water in Australia right now. But what they're doing in the States, very keen to see how Whole Foods go for them, how they really drive that to really personalize automatic topping up based on previous behavior. But they're probably the gold standard as far as using customer data. And I mean, the internet giants can often do that more than some of the bricks and mortar brands. They've got economies of scale in their favor. They've got huge teams to go and build and do this stuff. But the smaller brands, I mean, Espresso and New Foods are really good brands that actually drive time-based communications about if I haven't bought my pods for so long, I'm getting a communication saying, hey, There's a special there for that. And then we can go further down to real bricks and mortar. We work with a brand Bridgestone Australia, and they do really, really time communications depending on where you are in your buying or your tire cycle. So no one likes really buying tires, but it's an investment. They're really building a program about helping them keep the benefits of those tires, keeping those tires going as long as possible and maximizing the benefit. And to do that well, you need to be able to communicate with customers based on their buying cycle, where they are through their life cycle, rather than just in bulk emails.
2: Yeah, I think you're right in terms of the tech players. They sort of have both an unfair advantage in, you know, their size and the scale, but just in terms of the actual data sets that they have on their customers. I think there's a lot of businesses, certainly a lot of small, medium businesses that just don't know, like they'd have, you know, the point of sale data and that's, you know, pretty much it. Do you have any examples of where you've gone on a journey or where you've been able to look at some of the data, which may not be as rich, but there's still stories there which can influence some great programs? Yeah, we
1: work with the Hogs Australia Steakhouse. You know, they've got 80 odd sites. They've got some customer data, but not against all their transactions. It's really hard to track what customers are doing unless we can tie a customer to a transaction. So where we don't have transactional customer data. That data can't really inform what behaviors of customers are apart from what products they're moving. But what we looked at there is how often customers are actually coming through and what are they doing. And their program is really, it gives you a discount. But people actually spend that discount. And that was actually a really surprise. We thought they'd be pocketing the the difference and walking out the store. But in that case, there's a huge cohort of their customers, which they get the savings and they spend that savings back in the store to buy dessert or more drinks. And further to that, they're also influencing more people to come to the table because they're having bigger events. So those loyal customers uh, that we found inside that customer were very different than what we probably expected. In fact, a lot of the anecdotes were, oh, they come and get their discount, have a plate and walk out. I don't want to have any more of those customers.
0: Can we come full circle to uh, one of the things that we talked about at the start of this uh, discussion, which was the coffee shop and the, you know, buy nine, get one free thing. Hypothetically, if the biggest chain of coffee shops in Australia wanted to work with you and, and they've currently got a buy nine, get one free program, how would we kind of modernize that?
1: Yeah. I mean, you, you've got to have some way to track that customer at the point of system. So, in that case, we have to really advocate for some sort of physical loyalty program because customers need to identify themselves at the transaction. While there are some growing technologies that can help that, they are nowhere near mature enough to cover the full customer base. So we want to have a way to, to be able to record who that customer is at the point of sale. And the way that really works in coffee shops or in food retail, anyways is having a membership card or identifier, whether it's digital on the, on the Apple wallet or something in their physical wallet, but having a way to swipe and record that with a of style system. So to do that, we need some way to subscribe members to it. Um, and we recommend to not just give away the cards over the counter. Everyone gets a card who walks in. I've done that and I've probably got 15 cards for some brands. <laughs> I don't know who I am. I'm a ghost in the system. So I'm getting the benefits, but I'm not being able to be communicated to. The point of the program is to continue the conversation with the customer, not just to give them discounts turning up in the shop. So what I'd be saying is find a way. You don't really need to spend a whole lot of money. Most brands have got everything they need to get started. We haven't seen a point of sale system that can't record a customer identifier in the transaction. And it could be as little as asking someone for their phone number or having their phone number as a unique identifier on a card. So they really need that way to go and track that and have a communication channel to make marketing to them. The email the, the classic one because it's seen as free. But it's also a heavily used channel and it can be, people think it's free that way, they communicate all the time and we see huge disengagement rates over email. So having a couple of channels and still sometimes relying on direct mail, but also uh, SMS when appropriate and being able to identify the customer in store in the point of sale is important to give someone a surprise and delight, to offer them some benefit when they walk into the store that isn't straight up a straight flat discount.
0: And that's great, Michael. I mean, I think maybe the only other thing that I would want to consider in that is customers don't necessarily want to be subscribing to databases all the time for fear of getting, you know, blasted with marketing messages. And so, there needs to be a value add from their point of view. And so, maybe to use an example you had earlier, you were talking about Michael Hill Jewelry. Perhaps it's like, hey, would you like to note down your uh, phone number here and we'll basically record your transaction so that it records your warranty and like free cleaning and service and also an electronic record of the transaction in case you need it for insurance purposes. That's maybe kind of a nice way of saying, hey, there's some benefits to you rather than us just sending you marketing material all the time.
1: Yeah, 100%. It's got to be. It's got to be customer. There's got to be reason for the customer to give the details, and they're not giving to you because you've asked for it. In fact, a lot of people will go and do that. I think that's how has grown because they kind of give the cards to everyone. But really, it's got to be a genuine benefit to the customer or a perceived benefit for the customer to go and do that. And it it can't be delivered from the casual cashier that works a four-hour Saturday shift. if they can't deliver that in 30 seconds. And your program's way too complicated. And you may get people to join up, but you're just going to probably abuse them in over email only. So the mistake a lot of brands make is they want to have 100% of their people walking in the store to be a member of their program. And that's probably not where you want to be. You want to have a really, really strong loyal cohort of customers, a really good, stable, reliable base of income from them that helps even out the tough times and the fluctuations of retail. And to do that, you want to give them a benefit for trusting you. What we don't want to go and do is make it too complicated for someone to join or not have a really valid reason to join. I don't know how many databases I've signed up to and then probably as a student or brands and how they market customers, like I'm a bit of a huffy, I say yes to every single thing, if you want to join the program, I'm on. So,
2: How many programs are you part of on the last count?
1: If it's not close to 300, it's probably... Oh my gosh. Wow, 300. Yeah. 300, that's insane. Very good, very good email subscription. Probably
2: <laughs> Do you know what the average Australian or you know in Western market consumer, how many programs they're part of?
1: Yeah, I think the last study was about 10 or 12 programs people are part of. So, it's probably the everyday transactional sort of places they'll go to and then their most frequented casual um, shopping. Centers, so.
2: so, Michael, if step one is working with the data that you have and ideally enhancing it and enhancing it from the perspective of linking customer to transaction and then having a view of you know what's happening, you're now then sitting on a mountain of data, right? Can you talk about step two, which is looking at that data, finding the stories and then not overwhelming internal people with eighty six graphs and charts, but kind of finding the one or two stories or nuggets to go, do you know what there's something here that we should do? Because that's an entirely different skill set and an important skill set and become more important. I'm sort of interested in how do you do that well.
1: It's tough to do it well and as as your scale of your business, the bigger you are, the more effort that you need to go into that. The more customers you have and the more frequency of the transactions, the more complicated that can get. I think there's certainly a drive to find the perfect CRM tool that's going to do it all magically and while there's some great tools in market they probably don't solve all the problems it comes first to working out of the data we have how do we go and start breaking it down and joining the key insights together to go and make a change so if we go back to the RFM model if we can just get the customers names their contact details how many times they've been when the last time they come in and then also how much they've spent That's enough for us to really excel would probably do an okay job to get us started there, looking at, okay, well, give me a filter for everyone who's come in this week, has spent more than my average sale value and has come in more than 10 times. And that's probably a good start to get who are my really loyal customers. And then doing another filter to go look at those who have come in 10 times, we haven't seen them in two months, and they've got a high transaction value. Well, those are customers who should be loyal, but it looks like they've churned. we don't have to have all the tools to get started here. It's find some information that, that we can go in action from. And it could be just exporting that into MailChimp and then going and seeing a campaign and that might be enough to get started for a lot of brands. What we don't need anyone to go and really go and do is buy three or four sales and Maquettos and Tableaus and MXs. And it's a huge investment that's got... Some of this has to be taken back into the marketer's hands sometimes. If it's a it's an IT only driven project, then we love them, but they're really thinking of their risk and data security and compliance and about how to get all the POS systems migrated to the new systems. And they're not thinking of how we can go and help influence the customer. We need them involved in the project, but they shouldn't be the ones leading the marketing automation. They shouldn't be the ones leading CRM. It's got to start with the heart of the marketing and the heart of operations to execute this in store.
2: Maybe a good place to finish up, Michael, is your perspective on something that is maybe when all these things are in place, yet we don't see the growth and we maybe see the opposite. So, Myers in Australia, you know, they've had probably one of the longest loyalty programs. I remember them having the Coles Myer shareholders card and all this type of stuff, you know, for a very long time. So, they would have been sitting on a mountain of data. Toys R Us in the US and globally as well, you know, had great loyalty programs. So, is the issue that they had all this data but weren't seeing the right signs and stories or is it something else?
1: I think it's a bit of both. I mean, a hot air balloon probably can't save a sinking ship. So, you know, it, it can help lift and get buoyancy. But if your product isn't relevant, your brand isn't relevant, if you're not competitive in market, if you're still doing the old way and the market's moved on, no program is going to go and fix that problem or stop that problem from happening. The program's got to should be showing signs of it. They should have been seeing very clear signs about huge customers churning, not coming back and spending.
2: Yeah, and they're digging into that data. Why were they? Well, it was because of these reasons. Well, let's try to fix those reasons.
1: Yeah, and I think unfortunately, we're just seeing it right now. I think Myers has gone into sale season a month earlier than normal, and the drive is because they've got a problem. They got stock. They need to go and have a short-term goal of moving that stock. So they go to sale and discount. So those sort of programs end up being about discounting for customers. But those discounts aren't unique to the program as well so there's no real inherent benefit apart from some rebate back into those sort of programs so i think it's about finding the emotional level maybe that those brands don't have inside their program it comes down to a program is like all well, marketing it needs to be relevant it's got to be have a strategy to it it's got to be executed well and i don't think marketing is the only problem in some of those brands that are finding shrinking profits
2: yeah michael we've talked a lot about uh, loyalty about bringing data to life And we have both geeked out over books and podcasts that we're into. We'd be interested if you've got any recommendations, specifically podcast recommendations, for those that want to sort of explore this topic a lot more.
1: Well, I think they're they're few and far between having real genuine content. There's things like Crack the Customer Code, which gives good insights. Uh, There's some guys out of the States, which is the intuitive customer. They give really broader strokes about thinking about customer and customer centricity. And um, probably the other one, which is a little bit left to feel but I think it's really insightful because a lot of what we do in, is behavioural economics so Freakonomics Radio is a really good one it, it's a really broad economics, a lot of microeconomics inside there but they are extending more and more to behavioural economics, what makes people make decisions and that's probably, at the end of the day we're all in decision sciences so letting us think about what works, I find I get more value out of that than a lot of other more, more marketing ones. So. Great
0: fascinating discussion Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks Michael.
1: Oh, you're welcome, pleasure to be here
0: Wow, amazing discussion with Michael. He was super knowledgeable and a really great resource on customer loyalty. Something that I think we've danced around a couple of times on the show, but it was great to go deep and understand how loyalty programs work and how to do it well.
2: Yeah, exactly. I often think about it when I'm using a service and I use their loyalty program and I'm like, actually, you're just giving away your profit right now. And then there's other (laughs) times where I'm like, oh, I'm actually changing my purchase decision based on this program or this offer. And so, it was good to definitely do a bit of a deep dive on the topic and explore the right ways and how to avoid the wrong ways of doing great loyalty programs.
0: Absolutely. Well, let's jump into our debrief where we sum up the key takeaways. There was a lot in today's discussion. We're going to just focus on a couple that really stood out. The first one was we kind of discussed this whole idea of businesses doing loyalty programs, which kind of ends up being a benefit for them. There was a great moment where we talked about how a business should really think about the customer rather than themselves when designing this loyalty program. So, loyalty programs for people, not businesses. Yeah, exactly. That's actually a really nice summary, Michael. I mean, instead of going from, you know, internally and figuring out what benefits us, you know, increased margins, increased frequency of purchase, all that kind of stuff. I think sometimes we get distracted, those being the objectives. Really, those are the benefits mm. of a great loyalty program. The objective should be to build a relationship with a customer and give them value, right? Rather than them giving us value. So, think about like a, the Michael Hill example, instead of just asking people for their mobile number and saying, hey, we're going to send you a bunch of marketing material and stuff. What value can we give you? And, and we gave a few examples in the interview there.
2: No, I think that was good. And that sort of takes it to the second point for me, which is, you know, of course, you need to have campaigns and programs and specials and you want to ideally hit some financial goals for the month or for the quarter and so I think some of those things are going to be business hygiene and are required but I don't think that should be the only focus is what we're saying of loyalty program and actually the core motivation. Ideally, what you want is the core motivation and the foundation that it's built on is this relationship and I liked the example quite proud of myself that I started thinking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and very smart friends at Baines and Co have already done this and we looked it up and it is called <laughs> the elements of value. And I think this is point two, which is you really want to think about fine, maybe starting at the bottom of the, the pyramid, which is, you know, those price and functional elements and promotions and then going up the ladder into emotion. But really where you want to get to is really life-changing moments and social impact and having that deeper relationship over the long-term. And ideally, if you could start with that in mind, you may not be able to execute that straight away. You may sort of execute with some of the price promotion elements, but I think really aspiring to that and, you know, having that as part of the plan, you know, it really becomes the great hallmarks of fantastic loyalty programs.
0: Yeah, and we'll put a, a link in the show notes of today's episode to the elements of value graph that Bain and company have done.
2: Probably just one final one to, to sort of round us out is where we touched on how to think about all this data that we're capturing and we you know spoke about good ways to capture this data but there's sort of no point in sitting on a mountain of how your consumers are behaving and you know what they're saying and what they're doing if you don't do anything with it and so I think prioritizing the storytelling element of data I think it's a big challenge in a lot of organizations right now and really I suppose the point is putting a great prioritization effort on that and if it's not building up that muscle internally then looking to great agencies and external partners that can synthesize this mountain of activity that's happening and really crystallizing it into a couple of clear stories and then running some initiatives around that and then ideally you know running this sort of scientific like testing approach and then that can then go back into the loyalty program so ideally you have the two elements working hand in hand like the structure of what you're trying to achieve and you have a higher purpose with that structure and then you're looking at the data and seeing how everyone's behaving and then having that you know filtered back in so i think that's sort of a nice way to wrap up how to think about you know great loyalty programs
0: and michael said that you can get started with some pretty small initiatives as well right yeah that was good it was really good to hear that actually you don't have to
2: go to the sales forces and the you know hundreds of thousand dollars bet with tableau etc
0: but in addition to that it's also about biting off a small piece of that puzzle too and going all right well like let's look at purchase history of customers and purchase frequency and then deliver something relevant to them rather than trying to re-engineer the whole way you engage with every customer in the business try and pull out some cohorts first and like you said run kind of a testing methodology there Great. So, to sum those up, the three were... First one is design your loyalty program for people rather than for the business. And the second one
2: was consider moving up the elements of value pyramid. And the last one is prioritizing data storytelling with all this data and loyalty and consumer behavior data that you're sitting on.
0: Speaking of relationships, actually, um, we'd like to speak to you. So, connect with Michael and myself on LinkedIn. That's the best way to do it. We've had quite a few people connect with us recently and we love getting to know the customer experience leaders fans a bit more. So, the best thing to do is just look me up on LinkedIn, Michael Momsen, M-O-M for Mary, S-E-N. And I'm Adam Jaffrey. Well, thanks for listening. Thanks. See ya. Thanks for listening. Customer Experience Leaders is produced by RateIt. RateIt's technology gives you a real-time view of your customer experience through things like in-store tablets, tokens and SMS. So, forget mystery shoppers and annoying long survey emails and have a chat to the team at RateIt who can help you get a better real-time picture of your customer experience. For more information, head to rateitapp.com. That's rateitap hey. This show was created in partnership with Wavelength Creative. It was produced by me and Christopher Lawson, who also edited and mixed the show. Our theme music is by iColics, Peter Cooley and The Shrugs. Before we go, just a quick reminder to firstly, connect with Michael and myself on LinkedIn and tell us why you love the show or any suggestions that you have. And secondly, there are some great insights through our 20 plus episodes of Customer Experience Leaders. So go back, have a listen and tell somebody new about the show so they can learn too. Until next time, I'm Adam Jaffrey. Thanks for listening. We'll speak to you next time.